Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. Kind of expanded the series out. It was going to be like a three-week mini-series, and God won't let me kind of move away from it uh, just yet. We've already uh, identified in this series how God's grace is indispensable to our salvation. There's no way any of us can be good enough to earn our way into heaven. There's no way we can work our way there if it wasn't for God's grace that's revealed to us through Him sending His Son uh, to die on the cross for our sins. We wouldn't have any hope whatsoever. There are other components or dimensions of God's grace. It's talked about in the Bible because uh, God has forgiven us and he's gracious to us. We need to be gracious toward others. Uh, I made this statement a couple weeks ago that God's grace is not only big enough to uh, forgive us of anything that, that we've done, God's grace is also huge enough to help us get over anything that's been done to us. So we need to forgive other people for the hurts and the, and the pains that they send our way in life. Last week, we talked about circumstances in life itself because many times we, we face difficult circumstances. Sometimes they're self-imposed that we need to repent of. Uh, sometimes they're, they're forces outside of our control that cause us to face really difficult circumstances in life. And guys, to be honest with you, we've got two choices. Uh, we can keep staring right at the circumstance and allow it to defeat us and discourage us, or we can look higher than the circumstance and, and see God in His grace and allow His grace to encourage us. Paul said that we're to give thanks in everything and uh, because it's the will of God for us. And that's difficult, but it's a whole lot better to give thanks than it is to sit around mad and angry because of the circumstances that you have in your life. Today I want us to get a, a, a great picture, I think, a, a great story of God's grace. <clears throat> My concern is that many of us fail to allow God's grace to be as large as it should be in our lives. And we fail to walk in God's grace as much as we should. Uh, unless you've lived a life that's a lot more squeaky clean than mine, <laughs> uh, you need God's grace. And you need to walk in God's grace. And I, and I think a lot of people don't do that. They, they allow the devil to bring up past memories. Do you remember when you did this? Do you remember when you did that? And, and that keeps us discouraged. Instead of us walking around with the freedom of God's grace, we walk around bound up in, in the, the guilt and the difficulties and things we, we've experienced in our past because of our poor choices. And that's why we need to learn to, to really see how big God's grace is. And I think in the passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning, uh, it may not come together as much until the end. The message is a little bit different. You're going to feel like you're having an Old Testament survey class. Uh, probably if you've ever been in uh, taking any Bible classes, uh, you're, you're going to kind of be wondering, well, how, how all does this tie in? But I think when we look at these verses... And not the full genealogy of Jesus. You don't even have to go that far. Just the first six verses of Matthew chapter 1. We ought to come away with this picture that, man, God's grace is huge. God's grace is big. God's grace is greater than we allow it to be. And when we see His grace applied to some of the stories that we'll see in the genealogy of Christ, it ought to help free us up. 
It ought to help us walk better in, in the grace of God that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at what the Holy Spirit laid upon Matthew's heart as he started out his gospel. And uh, there's more to the genealogy than what I'm going to read, as I mentioned a moment ago, but just the first six verses I think will be sufficient. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And uh, there's a lot to that story right there you'll hear in just a moment. Uh, and, and Perez, the father of, of Hazan, and, and, and Hezron, rather, uh, was the father of Ram, and Ram was the father uh, of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Odeb, by Ruth, and, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king of David, uh, the, the king, and, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. You may sit down to read Matthew and just read over that and not even stop and think about everything that's communicated in those six verses. I think in this genealogy of Christ, we can find three specific categories that as we break it down into these categories and see everything that God has parked in these six verses for us, that we ought to go away with a, a lot better understanding of God's grace. If you showed up today carrying guilt of your past, even though you're a Christian, you ought to be able to go away today with a, a better understanding, more freedom in your life of God's grace after we go through these verses. So the category number one is simply this. There's a great story of God's grace that's found simply in God sending Jesus. And the fact that there is a genealogy, and the fact that the Bible said the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that's a huge story of grace, just that God chose to send his son. He, he didn't send his son into a world that he knew was going to love him. He sent his son into a world that was filled with sin, a world that was filled with brokenness. He sent his son to people that he knew was going to reject him and abuse him and ultimately crucify him. And yet God made the choice to send his son. Man, that's a picture of grace without anything else being said this morning. I, I've got three children, got one son, but I can't imagine me intentionally sending any of my children into this scenario to where I say, you know what? I want you to go over here. And when you get over here, they're not going to like you. <laughs> when you get over here, they're going to abuse you. When they get over here, they're going to wind up beating you and nailing you to a cross, but I'm going to send you over here anyway. I I'm glad God's more gracious than I am. Amen. Amen. Because that's exactly what God does in his grace, the very fact that a genealogy exists at all, that God saw fit to send his son into this sinful world through sinful men, it is a huge picture of the grace of God. And the Bible tells us that he planned it. Didn't happen by accident. God planned it. Look what's said here in Galatians chapter 4. For when the fullness of time had come, that little phrase implies this. God had a set time. God had an ordained time. It wasn't God's second choice or third choice that Jesus would come. 
It wasn't that God was surprised when Adam and Eve sinned. It wasn't that God was surprised when people couldn't live up to the Ten Commandments. It wasn't that any of that was a surprise to God at all. He, he was a lamb that was slain from the very foundation of the world. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a human being, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. That shows God's amazing grace for us. He sends His Son so that we who are guilty and proclaim guilty by the law because we can't live up to it, we could be redeemed. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Think about that for a moment. You and I, sinful as we are, the God of all the universe, the one that is holy, 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 he made the choice to send his son so that through faith in his son, he can adopt us into his family. It goes on and says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, through faith in Jesus, God is our Father. So we're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, we're an heir through God. That screams the amazing grace of God to us and what God planned for us through Jesus. And you see, it's really only through Jesus that we can fully experience God's grace anyway. Look at what's said here in John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of what? What's the word? Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. Now wrap your mind around that for a minute. John the Baptist was born before Jesus. And yet, John the Baptist being born before Jesus says, this is the one I've been talking about. This is the Messiah. This is the one you've been waiting on. He was born after me, but he was really before me because he's the eternal God of all time. And then he goes on and he says, and from his fullness, talking about Jesus, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I don't even know how to fully describe that. <laughs> Grace stacked up upon grace. Grace piled up upon grace. Now, if that doesn't mean something to you, you're lying to yourself and you think you're better than you are. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you've not come to the point that you've really been honest before God and you've seen God holy as He is and you recognize who you are. And there's a lot of people walking around this world like that that pretend they're okay. That pretend they're better than other people. That's not the deal. The deal is, are you better than God? And you compare yourself to the holiness of God. We all, all fall terribly short of that. So he gives us grace stacked upon grace. The law came through Moses, but it didn't come to save us. It came to show us we needed salvation, that we needed God's grace. And then it says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. If you want to see what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus didn't come just to do that. Jesus came to die for our sins. But if you want to see the perfect example of how God thinks, of how God acts, just look at Jesus. God put himself in human form. So we can understand exactly what God is like. And man, that is a, a gracious thing for God to do. For God to allow us to see 
grace and glory through Jesus, for God to give us grace upon grace through Jesus, stacked up grace through Jesus, for us to have grace and truth, amazing grace, the very fact that God sent his son is all the picture of grace that we need. But as we keep going through this genealogy, the second category I want you to notice that ought to help us view how great God's grace is involves the men that's found in the genealogy of Jesus. There's also a great story of God's grace, great stories I might should have put of God's grace in these men that are listed in the genealogy. See, we we tend to do this, I think. We tend to think of these men we read about in the Bible as being these larger-than-life figures, these heroes of the faith. And they are that. I mean, Hebrews 11 spells out heroes of the faith. But what I think we miss many times is that God lets us see them in all of their warts. God lets us see them in all of their deficiencies. God lets us see them in all of their negative circumstances. God lets us see them in all of their sin also. I'm so thankful God did that because if God put these heroes of the faith in the Bible and they were always perfect, I would think, what in the world is wrong with me? I have no hope whatsoever. But when we see these people that are considered heroes of the faith, And God clearly lets us know stories about not just their good side, but their bad side. That itself ought to communicate grace to us. So let's walk through some of those names. Abraham to start with. You know, Abraham we think of as being, man, Father Abraham. And uh, we, you know, we really uh, look to him and he's lifted up in, in, in the Bible and he should be because of his faith. But you realize before he ever knew anything about God, he was a worshiper of idols. In southern Babylon. And that all of a sudden he hears this God that he had never heard of before. Start talking to him. And he said, I want you to take your family and all your possessions. And I want you to follow me. And I'm going to take you to a place that I'll give you. That you have no idea where it is. And I'm not even going to let you know where it is till you get there. <laughs> so he does step out by faith. To follow him. And we see a story of that. By faith he goes here and he, and he builds an altar. And by faith he goes to this location. And he, and he builds an altar. To God and he's worshiping God. And with it God had also promised Abraham. I'm going to make a mighty nation of you. I'm going to give you more descendants. Than the sand of the sea or the stars of the sky. The problem with that is this. Abraham was really old. His wife Sarah was really old. And by all human expectations they could not have a child and yet God promises them that's what's going to take place but in the midst of all the faithfulness of Abraham we see a famine comes upon the land and Abraham instead of building an altar and taking time and praying and saying God what should we do during this famine Abraham kind of takes things into his own hands and he says here's what we're doing family we're going to go into Egypt because I hear there's food in Egypt. The Nile River is in Egypt. So, so we're going to go there. He doesn't take time to check it out with God. So that's his first mistake. Second mistake is as he's coming into Egypt, he's heard stories about Pharaoh really, really liking beautiful women. And by what the Bible reveals to us, Sarah must have been a really, really good looking woman. And he developed this fear in his heart. 
If they find out that Sarah is my wife, they will kill me first. So then she's not married to me. And then they will take her to Pharaoh's house. So good old faithful spiritual Abraham does this. He decides to lie about it. And he talks Sarah into lying about it. And he said, tell them that you're my sister, not my wife. So that's what happens. They did see her, Pharaoh's men. She must have been really attractive. They take her into Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh's putting her in there and his harem and everything. And then all of a sudden, God strikes Pharaoh with sickness. And what only happens is this. Pharaoh finds out what Abraham had done. He brings him in. He asks him, why did you do this? And then he drives them from their midst. So there we have Abraham that we so look up to telling a pretty major lie. A lot of Bible scholars feel like that it was when they were on their trip, potentially into Egypt, that his wife Sarah gets a handmaid by the name of Hagar. They now leave Egypt. The promise that God has given to Abraham that he would bless all the peoples of the earth through him, which is ultimately a promise of the Messiah coming. A promise that Jesus would come through the bloodline, through the seed of Abraham. But there's no children yet, not looking like it's working out too good. So Sarah comes up with a solution. Abraham, we're both really old. Why don't you come into my handmaid, Hagar, and have sexual relations with her, and she can conceive a son for you. So Abraham listens to the proposition. He goes into Hagar. She conceives a child who will be born, and his name is Ishmael. The angel of God told Hagar this about Ishmael. Next slide, please. He should be a wild donkey of a man. He has hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. The conflict that is going on in the Middle East today. You want to know where it began? It began with a choice of Abraham going into Hagar and having sexual relations with her. And now the Arabic peoples all tie their lineage back to Abraham. And there's been conflict and war for thousands of years because of maybe a 15-minute act that Abraham and Hagar was involved in. And here's the deal with it. The, the underlying lesson is this. They were trying to help God out in the flesh. You can't help God out in the flesh. I can't help God out in the flesh. I can't help God save me. All I can do is accept God's promise. And you see, Ishmael wasn't the promised seed. Later on, Sarah, in her old age, miraculously, she does conceive. And she has a son by the name of Isaac. And God said, that's the promised seed. But even though we have this negative part of the story in Abraham's life, God still chooses him to be of the bloodline of Jesus. 
In Isaiah, if you'll back up just a, just a second, Isaiah also is, he is given some, some testimonies later. He, he talks about it being Abraham. Romans says this, Romans 4, 3, 4 says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. Abraham believed the promise of God. He believed that in spite of all evidence to the contrary, that God somehow was going to give him a son and God somehow was going to raise up a mighty nation and God somehow was going to bless all the peoples of the world through that son. And he took God at his word and God said, because you believed me, I call you and make you righteous. It was an act of grace. It wasn't because Abraham was circumcised because God had not even initiated circumcision yet. It wasn't because Abraham obeyed the law because the law wasn't given to Abraham. The law was given to Moses hundreds of years later. The only way Abraham is proclaimed righteous is that he believed God and God counted it to him like a banking term for him being righteous. And that's the same thing that happens with us. We take God in his word that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that he will save us when we trust in his son. And when we take God in his word, God reckons us to be righteous. Jesus said this before Abraham was. <laughs> I am. In spite of Abraham's mistakes, God still uses him for the bloodline. Isaac, that I mentioned a moment ago, his, his son, is the next there in the, in the list. And Isaac, for the most part, when we read Isaac's story in the Bible, Isaac uh, appears to be a person of, of good faith and, and huge faith. And all through his life, and this might seem like it's a slight nuance for me to even bring it up of maybe a negative thing in his life, but you see something happens. He winds up, he and his wife, Rebecca, wind up having twins. And along the way, Isaac loved Esau more than he did Jacob. And Isaac, even though God had told Isaac Esau's not the seed of promise, Jacob is, and Jacob's supposed to be the one to get the birthright. Esau was still planning in his mind for Esau to get the birthright. So even though God had told him otherwise, he's going to go opposite of what God had said, but he loves Esau best. The Bible tells us that Jacob was Rebekah's favorite. She loved him best and helped confuse, con, conceive a plan to where they could steal the birthright from Esau. Now, guys, this might seem like a slight nuance, but I, I'm telling you as parents, we need to be careful we don't ever, ever make our children think we love one more than the other. Because this will ultimately lead to huge friction between Jacob and Esau. We, we need to convince our children that we love them both just the same. Because if not, it can emotionally damage them. And it can lead to friction and problems down the road in relationships between them. And that's what you see taking place in, in Isaac's life. Let's go to Jacob for a minute. Jacob was called uh, 
His name meant subplanter, which really means like he was a schemer. When, when he was being born, he reached up and grabbed Esau's foot like, I'm, I'm going to be first whether you like it or not. After this friction took place between Esau and, and Jacob, Isaac sent him away to go stay with an uncle. And while he's there, he's working for his uncle Laban, and Laban promises him a wife. The only thing about it, Laban's kind of a schemer too. <laughs> In the day of the wedding, after the veils lifted up, he realized Laban, you tricked me. You lied to me. That's not the daughter I was supposed to marry. That'd be a shock, wouldn't it? Guess what? (laughs) So then he has to stay and work more years for Laban and and finally gets to marry that daughter also. So now he he goes away and he's coming back home with two wives and a lot of possession and wealth he's built up along the way. He finds out Esau's on the way to meet him. He's not knowing how that's going to work out. So that night, he kindly pulls aside by himself, Jacob does. And when he pulls aside and goes across this brook, he has an encounter with what at the very least is an angel of God, but what most Bible scholars believe is the pre-incarnate Jesus himself. And he is there and starts wrestling with this angel of God. And, and they wrestled through the night and Jacob was, uh, you know, trying to keep the angel from prevailing. He was like going back and forth, back and forth. And finally, the, the angel, which most people believe is a pre-incarnate Christ, you'll understand why in just a minute, reaches down and touches his socket in his hip. And that changes the way Jacob walks the rest of his life. Something else happens also. His name is changed that night from supplanter to prince with God, Israel. He named the place where he wrestled that night Peniel because he said, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. So probably not just an angel, probably Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus there that he wrestles with. But he gets touched in the hip and he walks different the rest of his life. A little side lesson for us to learn there. When you and I, by faith, have encounters with Jesus Christ, it ought to change the way we walk. It ought to change the way we, we walk and the way we live our lives. Jacob left the encampment that day walking like Jacob. He come back looking like Jacob, but walking like somebody else. I pray to God, people that knew me years ago, before I'd really given my life over to, to God and following Him, I pray those people somehow later on in my life saw me walk a little bit different. I might have looked like Liam Parson, but I hope I was walking different. Because when we have an encounter with Christ, it ought to affect the way we walk and the way we live our lives. He has those two wives. He also has children by, by two of their, the wife's handmaidens. So, not a perfect family story. You getting the picture I'm giving you? And ultimately, he has 12 sons, and from that will develop the 12 tribes of Israel. So let's talk a little bit about the 12 sons, especially Judah, for a moment. As we think about Judah and his brothers, the 12 sons of Jacob, who became Israel, that we're just talking about, who become the tribes of, of Israel eventually, the story is not a pristine story. 
First of all, they get jealous of Joseph. Some of it was Joseph's fault. Some of it was Jacob's fault. Probably making the brothers think that, hey, I, I think they love Joseph. He loves Joseph more than he loves me. Then God gives him a dream. <laughs> and Joseph's kind of bragging about that dream, letting them know, hey, you guys are going to bow to me one day. They didn't like that. Here's their solution. They're out in the field one day. Joseph comes out to where they are and they see him coming and they said, let's kill him, throw him in a pit, take his bloodied coat back to our father and say a wild animal killed him. Hey, that sounds like a great family to be a part of, doesn't it? (laughs) Judah, to speak to his benefit, does speak up and say, hey, let's not do that. There's a caravan coming through. Instead, let's sell him into slavery. Yeah, that's not quite like they murdered you, but it's still not their, your best friend, you know? And we don't have time to go into all the story today, but you know, if you read the Bible at all, how, how Joseph goes through difficult circumstances, but ultimately he, he comes or he's like the third in power in, in Egypt. And God has him there for a reason, for an intent, because there's a great famine that's going to hit the land and, and his brothers and his dad and, and their families are going to need to come into Egypt to survive. And he is there being the one that helped Egypt get ready for the famine by storing the grain and everything else. Now, there's a lot more to the story between them. Some restoration takes place and, and stuff. But I'm just giving you a picture of that things weren't always cool in the family. But Judah himself had two sons that were killed by the judgment of God. I would just submit to you, if God's judgment, in his judgment, he decides he needs to kill two of your sons. Something's kind of messed up there. I don't know what they, everything that they had done and were doing, but they passed God's deadline and, and they're dead. He had a daughter-in-law named Tamar. We'll see her in a few minutes again, briefly. But Tamar, her husband, had died. Judah promised her, because this was part of the Levitical law, he promised her, since your husband has died and you don't have a child and there's not a child to raise up my son's name, when my, when my younger son gets of age, you can be his wife and he can father a child and be raised up in my, in, in, in my other son's name. But he never kept his promise. One day, Judah's going on a business trip, kind of close by city. And while he is there taking care of some business, you understand back then he's probably buying camels and sheep and stuff like that. Tamar finds out about it. And she goes to the gate of that city and she dresses like a prostitute. She had a head covering on the type of head covering a prostitute would wear. And the Bible doesn't tell us that she called out to Judah. The Bible tells us that Judah came over to her and said, let me come in to you. So he goes in, not realizing it's Tamar. He has sexual relations with his daughter-in-law. He doesn't have anything to pay her right then, so he gives her some personal items 
And, and he said, hold on to these as a promise. I'll send a servant later with payment for you. But when the servant comes, they can't find the prostitute because, you see, it wasn't really a prostitute working in that city to begin with. Tamar had gone back home and had taken those clothes off. But a few months later down the road, it becomes evident that Tamar's pregnant and she's not married. Someone brings this story to Judah, and good old righteous Judah says, bring her here and burn her so whoredom can be taken out of Israel. And then Tamar sends those personal items and Judah realizes what had happened. And she eventually has twins. Guys, you can't, this, this is better than soap operas. <laughs> I, I, I'm, just, I'm just wanting you to understand the full story of some of these Bible characters. And even though that's the truth, Jesus is born through the tribe of Judah. He's born through the bloodline. There, there's grace somewhere, amen, amen. For, for that to happen. Let's move forward just a little bit more. And I'm not going to look at all the names as I said a moment ago. Jesse, we're not told a lot about Jesse as far as anything negative about him. He's the father of King David. We're told in the Bible that Isaiah said this. There's going to be a rod from the stem of Jesse. There's going to be a root of Jesse. That's messianic prophecies. But one thing that you can maybe pick up that might be a slight nuance, a little bit about Jesse. Whenever Samuel was looking to ordain a new king, to anoint a new king, and they sent word for Jesse to bring his sons, Jesse kindly minimized old David and said, well, you just stay here with the sheep. You're young, you're little. I'm going to take my strapping, big-looking sons, and they'll walk through. And surely it's one of them, but it wasn't one of them. Because you see, God sees differently than we see. God sees the heart. And, and God even knew that David was a man after his own heart. It won't appear like it in a minute, but... You have gone from Jesse then to King David. King, King David was that shepherd boy to start with, writing some psalms and songs and playing his harp and protecting the sheep. He winds up being the one that was chosen, but he doesn't become king just yet. One day he even is sent by his father to kind of take some food to his brothers. They're out at a battle scene. There's a guy there by the name of Goliath that's been making sport of all the armies of Israel and Israel shaking in their boots. And David shows up with faith in his heart and says, how dare he defy our God and, and defy us? And he goes out and kills him with a slingshot and cuts his head off. So now all of a sudden they're writing these songs about David and Saul starts to get jealous. Even though Saul had been brought in, even though David had been brought into Saul's home to play music and try and calm his spirit and, and to be there as one of his soldiers, but he got really jealous even to the point of throwing a spear at him and trying to kill him. Then David does eventually become the king and he's this huge warrior king and, and Israel's taking over territories and they're defeating their, their enemies and it's like he's a bigger than life figure. A great king. 
But one day, when his army's away fighting, he decides, I'm not going to go to battle this time. And he stayed home, and he was relaxing in his home, and in the cool of the evening, he stepped out on the roof of his house, and he looks over, and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. And when he should have been at the battle, he's here, and he puts himself in these circumstances, and he sends his men after a woman by the name of Bathsheba, brings her in, has sex with her. She ultimately winds up conceiving a child, and he finds out about it. David is thinking, how in the world can we cover this up? I know. Let's do this. Let's bring Uriah from the battlefield. I'm going to hang out and talk with Uriah a little bit. I'm going to slap him on the back. We're going to hang out and have a little bit of good time. And I'm going to say, Uriah, go home and spend the night with your wife. But Uriah wouldn't do that. He went and stayed at the gate of his house all night long. And he said, how God forbid that I do this thing while all the rest of my brothers are in battle. So David's plan didn't work out. Then he conceived a new plan and he sends a message to his generals. And he said, in the heat of the battle, withdraw from Uriah and let Uriah be killed. And that's exactly what happened. So this King David that Jesus is born through the bloodline of, what I'm trying to communicate to you today is a huge picture of God's grace. Yes, he might have been a great king. Yes, he beheaded Goliath. Yes, he was a great warrior king. Yes, he wrote the Psalms and and all things like that. But... He's also an adulterer, and he's also a murderer. And yet, still yet, Jesus is born through the bloodline of David. Acts chapter 13 in the New Testament, verse 23, God said about this, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus as He promised. He's a man after my own heart, even after He had done those things. Do, 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 you, do you understand why I'm telling you all these narratives today? Do you get the picture? Because I'm betting that some of you are having some issues getting over things in your life. And some of you have been believing the devil's lie that God's grace is for somebody else, but it's not really for me because I'm just too bad. Well, I'm telling you right here is an adulterer and a murderer. Who God in his grace still allows his son to be born through the bloodline. And Solomon is the last name of the men that we're going to look at, winds up being born. Solomon is also the bloodline of Jesus. God could have chose a child from David and his first wife. Or David and one of his other wives. But instead, God, it looks like to me, almost intentionally, maybe to give us this huge story of grace, chooses that the bloodline of Jesus would come through David and Bathsheba and Solomon. The first baby died. And then Solomon is born. And Solomon, by the way, wasn't squeaky clean himself. Yes, he was wise because he asked God for wisdom instead of riches. God said, I'm going to give you both. 
But the Bible says he had many, many, many wives and many, many concubines. The Bible lets us know that he was really frustrated with even the meaning of life. That's why you have the book Ecclesiastes in the Bible. What in the world is the meaning of life? In Proverbs, Solomon is kind of warning his children about things. And he's saying, if you don't listen to, to, to God, you're going to come to ruin in the midst of the congregation. But most Bible scholars also believe that's a statement from the heart of Solomon, where Solomon was saying, hey, I almost messed up so bad. I was in spiritual ruin in the midst of the congregation. And yet, in the bloodline of Jesus. Now quickly, we're going to look at four women. Because that's our third category this morning to help us see how great God's grace really is. And you'd have to understand the cultural atmosphere of that day and time to even recognize this. For, the, for women's names to be mentioned at all in the genealogy of Jesus shows the grace of God. Because normally the names of the women would not be mentioned in a Jewish genealogy. It wasn't like it is today. If you want a little bit of a picture of how their culture viewed women, look at how the Taliban or ISIS treats women today. And that gives you a little bit of a picture of the way women were viewed in that day and time. So the very fact that women are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus communicates God's grace. Look at four women quickly. Tamar, I already told you about her. She dressed up like a prostitute. She conceived children by her father-in-law. And yet she is in the bloodline of Jesus. How many remember Rahab the harlot? You understand what a harlot is. Rahab the prostitute who had her house along the walls of Jericho running a house of ill repute. The spies come in and they go and try and hide in her house. And the men of the city of Jericho are looking for these Israeli spies. And she hides them and lets them down over the wall when it would be safe for them to escape. And they make her a promise. You see, she had heard about their God and all that he was doing. So that's why she helps them. And they make her a promise. If you will hang this red cord in your window when we come and run over the city of Jericho. When God helps us take over Jericho, if you'll hang this red cord, we will preserve you and your household alive. That red cord is a picture of the blood of Jesus, a type of the blood of Jesus. By faith, she hung it in the window. And by faith, she was preserved. And by faith, this woman that had been in a city called Jericho, running a house of ill repute, is in the bloodline of Jesus. Ruth's name is mentioned. And Ruth, we get wonderful pictures of her faith. But something you might not pick up on in the Bible is this. She was from Moab. And that means she was a Gentile. And by all rights and the way they operate in that day and time, she shouldn't be in a Jewish genealogy. She shouldn't be in the blood of Jesus. She's a Gentile. And yet by faith, she made the choice to follow Naomi. And she made a faith choice when she said, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. So even though by being a Gentile, she shouldn't be there by God's grace, she's in the genealogy of Christ. 
Last one we'll look at. I want you to notice how the Holy Spirit leads Matthew to even speak of her. He doesn't call her Bathsheba. He says, David, and then he says, the wife of who? Uriah. It's as though the Holy Spirit wants to, hey, let me make this clear. I want you to understand that Bathsheba was married to Uriah, and they committed adultery. By the way, it takes two to tango, and she was involved in it also. Some people say, well, she couldn't help because he was the king. To a certain degree, I think she could have helped it and resisted. But the Holy Spirit wants to make it very clear the sinful situation that took place. And it says that this woman that Solomon is born through, that the blood of, line of Jesus comes through, that she was the wife of Uriah. We don't have time to do it today, but maybe this afternoon tonight, if you want a good little Bible study in light of what we talked about this morning, read David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. See, David thought he got away with his sin. Nathan the prophet came in and told him a story about someone taking somebody's only lamb. And David got really indignant about it. And then Nathan looked at him and said, hey, you're the man that did this. You're the one that has done this. You're, you're the one that, that, that took Uriah's only wife. You had plenty, but you took her. And that just gives us, I think, an intentional picture of God's forgiveness in God's mercy, in God's grace. Do you understand why I've done this today? I hope you've not been bored with all these stories out of the Old Testament because the point is this. They weren't perfect. They were sinners also. And some of them have sinned in ways that you would think of yourself as being a lot worse than yourself. I don't know how many murderers we've got present. We've probably got some people that have been caught up in sins like adultery and things like that before. But in regards of that, the point is this this morning. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, God's grace is big enough to take care of all your sin and all your choices and all your past. And if you know Christ as your Savior, you need to be walking around in that forgiveness and in that grace instead of the guilt of your past. And one of the main reasons that needs to be true is that if Satan can keep you guilty about your past, when you go outside the walls of this place in a real world, you're not going to do a lot serving Jesus out here because in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I can't do this. I'm not worthy to do this. I can't even try to imagine I can serve Jesus because of my past. When the reality is, if you know Christ as your Savior, He paid for it with His blood. It's gone by faith in what He did for you on the cross. And you need to live your life in the forgiveness and the grace of God that he has offered you through faith in his son. And if you're someone in this place this morning that doesn't know Christ as your savior, and maybe you have stayed distant from churches and distant from believing in Jesus because somehow you've convinced yourself that it's for everybody else, but it's not for me because I'm too bad. 
I hope you can see from all these stories we looked at this morning that God's grace is great enough to take care of you no matter who you are and what you've done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, in your word, preserve the the stories of these heroes of the faith, of these Bible characters in the way that you did. God, I thank you that you let us see the good, bad, and the ugly. And, And I thank you, Father, for the good examples they set, but I thank you for the hope that that is ours through your grace when we see how your grace was applied to their life, so much so that you intentionally sent your son through their lineage, through their bloodline. Father, there's someone here that's never, ever trusted Jesus, and, and they've somehow convinced themselves that, they're, that they've done too much, that they've been too bad, that you can't really love them. Father, I, I pray today that you give them the faith they need to say yes to Jesus. And Father, for those of us that have trusted Him and yet we allow the past to crop up, even though it's in our past, even though it's not active, we we allow it to crop up in our lives too many times. And Father, sometimes even as believers, we'll make bad choices and we still sin and we still disappoint You and we still fall short. And many times... In those moments, we, we start feeling like, what's the use? Because we've, we've fallen again. Father, give us a fresh drink of your grace, a fresh experience of your grace, a fresh hope in your grace today to where we can leave this place walking in your amazing grace instead of our guilt. For we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Please stand. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.